Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, September 13th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim finishes up the history of Disney's Haunted Mansion. Let's get started by bringing in the man who points out that the Denny's restaurant chain is named after the Greek god of parties and chaos. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going well, and, and, and let's put it this way, Len. If the gods do choose to smite me, please let it be with a grand slam, which again, <laughs> two buttermilk pancakes, two beef bacon strips, a sausage, two sausage, and two eggs. I mean, that's the way to go. That's a hearty breakfast. Yeah, well, uh, my A order would say pretty much the same thing. <laughs> By the way, the Denny's restaurant chain actually started Lakewood, California, 1953, was originally known as Danny's Donuts, which, again, as a diabetic, is another thing I have to avoid. Are you reading this off of a Denny's menu? Like, where did you where did you come up with this? It's just, I just put this in the show notes like five minutes ago. What are you, what I, are you doing? <laughs> what can I tell you? I have a vast collection of placemats. You know, just right at my hand. You know, right here. So... <laughs> Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, J.K. Josimo, Dave Meske, and Jojo20000. And longtime subscribers, Ronald Landrum, Ski Daily, and Christopher Manning. Jim, these are the folks who have to explain every night to the family living inside the 50s Primetime Cafe how they're related to everyone who came in to eat that day. True story. (laughs) This kind of reminds me of my sister-in-law, Anita Sevenazi, who basically explained to my two nephews at a very young age that, you know, in the small town that they live in, that if the person that they know has a vowel at the end of the name, they're probably related. <laughs> don't don't date anyone with a vowel at the end of your name. There you go. Their, so, their name. That, that makes a lot of sense. And then when you're a small town, I mean, you can't be too, too cautious. That's no, no that, that's it exactly. Remember, the family tree is supposed to branch. Not a straight line, so. (laughs) All right, Jim, let's do the news. Mm -hmm. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Yeah, it shouldn't be a cyclical graph, should it, the the family tree? No, 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 should not. Okay, Mm -hmm. fair enough. All right, Jim, uh, some brief news. Our friends over at WDW Magic reporting that a launch of Genie and Genie Plus should happen the first week of October. And I don't know if I mentioned this on last week's show, but over the weekend, um, we started to see Lightning Lane signs pop up all over property. Have you seen these? Well, yeah, and I forget who it was I saw on Twitter who said, maybe not the best sign to put outside of the Tower of Terror. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, just a little too on the nose here. A little too on the nose. There we go. So... The reason why I, I mentioned this is that it uh, fits hand in hand with another news item, and that is that Expedition Everest is going down for a lengthy refurb early in 2022, and that will cause a drop in significant drop in capacity at Animal Kingdom in terms of ride capacity. And I'm interested to see what this is going to do to uh, Lightning Lane pricing, because when there's less capacity, there'll be more demand. I have heard some interesting things about this refurb. and Let's just start by saying that Yeti's not getting fixed. Yes, but supposedly the projecting mapping technology that's been used in Big Thunder is going to be employed in Expedition Everest 2.0. So, so they're adding special effects to the Yeti to make it look like it's moving. You said that? I, I I'm didn't. I'm not opposed to this, Jim. Okay, okay. Just saying. It's not going to be Disco Yeti. It's going to be, what's the name of the bodysuit that they wear? Motion capture. There we it's go. Gonna be mo- it's going to be mocap Yeti. There we go. So Also, yeah. mo- mocap Yeti sounds like a great jazz band name. It does. It mo-cap does. Yeti. Yes. We should get some t-shirts going. Mocap so. Yeti. Mocap Yeti. <laughs> That's <Yeti>. it. <laughs> All right, Jim. We have a bunch of listener questions this week, so let's get right into it. Okay. First question is from Sarah, who says, I'm hoping you might be able to answer a question about buying Disney annual passes. And when's the right time to make that kind of commitment? You know, Jim, there's nothing that I enjoy more mm-hmm. than talking to women about commitment. No. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> anyway, uh, Sarah continues. I love the Disney parks and Imagineering. I also love Disney history. I spent some time interning after college in 2018 with Yellow Shoes in California. Isn't that uh, Disney's marketing team? Yeah, yeah. Or communications the, marketing team, yeah. 
Jim Corkis has done some great work for Yellow Shoes over the years. Interesting division of the company. And Sarah goes on to say, uh, I currently reside in the Washington, D.C. metro area, so it does take some time to get to the parks. But we're thinking that next year would be the best time for a while to go and get to know Disney World. What do you think is the best way to consider this decision? All right. So, Sarah, I think the Incredipass, the newly announced uh, and newly on sale annual pass option, the Incredipass is the one that you would get. So for two of you, that's almost $2,800 for a year. Here's the way I, I looked at this. A five-day adult park hopper is currently right at $643 from Disney. So you need two five-day trips each, plus maybe another short trip to break even on the annual pass. And that excludes food and merch discounts and any hotel discounts. So maybe you could do it in exactly two five-day trips. You could even stay off-site because you would have at least uh, 10 days in the parks. And then you can prioritize a couple of attractions to get to in each morning or each evening and not have to feel like you had to be there open to close every day because you've got an annual pass. So I think financially that's how I would I would think about that. You know, two five day trips possibly staying off site, you know, to save some money. I mean, consider that as an option because you would use the extra time you have in the parks to prioritize the the very important attractions for you. What do you think, Jim? That would work. If we're talking 2022, hopefully we're seeing more of the entertainment come back. I guess my concern, along with everybody's, is are we sliding backwards? In, 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 it's actually evening out. I don't know if you've, seen, if you've been tracking the numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're talking about COVID, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the numbers look like they are. We are very near the peak. Okay. And we're starting to get things under under control here. So oh, I'm assuming okay. like another month. Okay, I hope so. Um, I just you and know, hopefully just in time for cold and flu season. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, I, just kidding. Interesting. Just kidding. Nancy just got her flu shot, and I'm waiting to get mine. But oh yeah, cold and flu season. You know, oh, that yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Forgot about that. Also, Jim, we have a, a similar annual pass question from Michael, who mm-hmm. writes on our recent stay at the Grand Floridian DVC Villas. We found the beautiful chocolate scenery made by the Grand Flow Chocolatiers that you and Jim mentioned seeing on a previous episode. So this was the the Florida Panther, Jim, mm-hmm. by one of the other uh, doors. We stood there in silence admiring the incredible work with my four children who are all avid fans of the show until my 17-year-old said, wow, can you believe we're standing where Len Testa once stood? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie, Michael. That made my day. That was kind of funny. Uh, that is funny. And Michael goes on to say, as for my question, I'm confused about the annual passes that were recently put on sale. I was wondering if you can offer guidance on break-even points as to when to purchase a piece or how to frame that purchase decision. We're DVC members and currently have annual passes. However, we need to crunch the numbers again to determine whether that makes sense with the new program. My first glance at the new passes seems to indicate that there are two options available to DVC members, and they're both considerably more expensive than the previously discounted versions. Any guidance would be appreciated. In lieu of guidance, perhaps you could send us something else that you may have previously stood upon, a floor tile, a pedestal, shoulders of those who came before you, <laughs> so that my children can be further awestruck. <laughs> we have to get this guy right into the show. I know, right? This is better This is better material than we have. There we go. Uh, all right. So Michael's question is a little bit different than Sarah's mm-hmm. because they're DVC owners, so they can get the $957 Sorcerer's Pass. An adult four-day park hopper is $533 right now. So two four-day trips, Michael, means you'd save money with the Sorcerer's Pass. And you're right that that's more expensive than the old Gold Pass, which was $765. And I think the way that we're phrasing that is Disney's already got your money, so uh, they know they have you over a barrel. But I think, mm-hmm. Michael, the um, you know excluding the food discounts, excluding the merch discounts, two four-day trips in your set. So for the four of you, and that's good. The other thing I would say is, if you've got a 17-year-old, you know, it won't be long until you start sending kids off to college. So you've got a limited number of entire family trips that you have left. So I, I would I would opt for the for the annual pass. What do you think, Jim? Excellent insight. Yeah. This is actually fits into the classic Disney pattern where they, they talked about, you know, you lose the kids 10, 12, 13, but you yeah. gain them back when they have their own children. And so Yeah, there's only like a 20-year period where you're not all going as a family, and then you go as grandparents, right? There we go. Yeah. yeah. So. It's, it's funny because, uh, so I, I think I've talked about this on the show before, but uh, Hannah and I mm-hmm. go on a one trip every year and mm-hmm. it's, it's the, it's the sacrosanct trip where it cannot be violated. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've managed to, to do that until she's, well, she's 23 this year. So we're, uh, we're doing a, a, a trip every year. 
which is like, so I'm like, I, I, I'm super dialed into the, how many trips do you have left with it where it's just you and your kids, There you go. you know, before it's not just you and your kids anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that's a, that's why I, th- that particular question appealed to me. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's one from Phil who says, I'm trying to plan a seven day trip to Walt Disney world for president's day week in 2022. So that's February. Mm-hmm. How do you handle making park reservations and dining reservations when you can do both at the same time? Should I book my park dining first and then my reservation? Or vice versa. So this is interesting because you can only do one at a time, right, Jim? Yeah. Yeah. And so the question is, do you make the park reservation first and then the dining reservations? I would say, actually, you'd want to, if you can only do one thing at a time, Mm -hmm. you're not employing your own children to wake up at 6 or 7 a.m. with you Mm -hmm. to do this. I would say you would do dining first because if there's a specific venue that you want to eat at, let's say, you know, you want to eat at Cinderella's Royal Table. And you want to eat at a specific time, like 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. There's very few of those seats available relative to the number of park reservations that are available. So I would do dining first, and then I would do park reservations. That does give your day, so to speak, an anchor, a place, an event to build the day around. But right. that certainly makes sense. You know, Fewer dining slots, and, and obviously you can fit more people into a park than you can into a single restaurant. By the way, did you see that um, the Disney's now added a more obvious disclaimer on its dining reservations, saying that if you're eating in a park, you also need a park reservation, that having a dining reservation doesn't get you into the park? Yeah. There were some ugly conversations at the gate that led to that. You know, that's like, I, yeah. I haven't admit, you know, and it's like probably one of those days when the parks were at capacity and it's yeah. just, I'm sorry, I know what you have in your hand and I know what you can show me on your phone, but yep. you still can't come in. And I actually saw this at guest relations at the magic kingdom last week, one day when I was just bopping around mm-hmm. and the family that was, that was, um, that didn't have the park reservations mm-hmm. was extremely polite about it, mm-hmm. but you could tell that the mom had a lot of experience either in debate mm-hmm. or in in cross-examining people because she essentially said, so you're Disney, right? But walked walked through the, the, the poor cast member through the process of making a reservation, mm-hmm. pointing out that Disney's computer systems aren't speaking to each other mm-hmm. when all of this is happening. And it was it was very enlightening. It's like and I think she summed it up by saying, so Disney's Disney's restaurants don't uh, that are don't know that they're in the park that I need a reservation mm-hmm. and can't handle all that. And the cast members basically like, yeah, no, which was like, okay, great. And she's not wrong. <laughs> no, no. But sometimes if you're outside the park, if you're not at guest relations at the park, the specific park, and for example, our good friend Angela that had wanted desperately to get into the Magic Kingdom on October 1st. Supposedly all those tickets had been available. Suddenly some became available and Angela leaped, but could get admission to a park on October 1st, but not the kingdom where she wanted to go. So she wound up over at Guest Relations at Disney Springs and basically pled her case. And a lovely young woman there, a postgraduate in the Disney computer system, (laughs) spent about 30 or 40 minutes, you know, working her magic on the keyboard, eventually came back to to Angela and was like, you're in. (laughs) There was some smoke. I smelled incense. There was a goat bleeding and then it stopped. There we go. There we go. And it just sort of, you would think being in the kingdom would be the place you could resolve that issue. No, she had to go to Disney Springs. Disney Springs. Just to throw that on the pile. Sometimes getting no from one set of guest relations doesn't necessarily mean you'll get the same result if you go someplace else. So just, you know, keep that in mind. I I had a similar story from a friend who was trying to use partially redeemed tickets mm-hmm. as a credit towards an annual pass. Mm-hmm. And so he, he had talked to me the day before like, what he was going to do. He was going to go to guest relations when he was in Walt Disney world mm-hmm. and, um, and try and get them upgraded. So he, he was reading to me the Disney's website, like what the policy is for upgrading. And he said, okay, you know, I paid X dollars for this pass based on what, you, what I just read to you from Disney's website, how much prorated credit can I expect to get for my annual pass? And I was like, okay, you paid X dollars, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah. I said, I would expect to get anywhere from zero 
2x <laughs> in terms of credit because really no one knows the answer to this question it's going to come down to the specific cast member that you get mm-hmm. and how well they know the ticketing system because <laughs> I, I, I relate to him the story of remember when you and i mm-hmm. bought disneyland tickets like two or three day tickets at one point and then decided to upgrade them on the same day to annual passes and we bought our tickets within minutes, minutes of each other mm-hmm. and yet paid vastly different prices. Yes. For yes. both tickets. <laughs> like, yeah. what, what, what is going on here? I'm not talking about like, you know, I'm not saying like we, Jim and I paid like, you know, 50 cents more or less. Mm. We paid like many dozens of dollars less. I think it was like either 50 or $100 difference yeah. between us. Yeah. And all I can suggest is perhaps the famous Lentesta naming wheel. That, that I, I believe just out of sight in the admissions booth, there is a similar wheel to the effect of, yeah. why? Yes, the press today. Oh, $100 more. I am so sorry. All right. Next question is from Daniel. Mm-hmm. He says, I'm traveling to Disney World from October 10th through the 15th at Pop Century. I have not seen any advertised discounts on rooms for October yet. I'm booked with a travel agent and have been advised that any discounted room rates will be applied to my reservation. My question is, do you think there will be any discounted room rates that close to the 50th? Or will Disney try to take advantage of the anniversary and not offer any discounts for October? Knowing that the people who wanted to be there for the 50th will pay the standard rack rate just because. So I, most of the time, Daniel, I would say that within a couple of weeks of the 50th, Disney's going to not offer many discounts. But I say that, but if you check Hotwire and Priceline, Jim, have you done this recently? Nancy, it's actually been a, a poking out ahead of our trip in October. Yeah, it's been kind of intriguing. So Hotwire has all-star movies deals at $78 a night, up from $68 a night right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but $78 a night as late as September 28th in Coronado at $155. And going... Out into January, I can already see some $108 a night all-star deals. And this is from our fabulous John Tierney, who does our mm-hmm. Priceline and Hotwire research for our blog. My guess is that Disney is going to continue to use Hotwire and Priceline as a way to test the discount market. So they're not going to do it on their own site, but they will do it using Priceline and Hotwire. The other thing I would say, Daniel, is the website that I've been checking most recently for for substantial lodging discounts is this thing called dvcreservations.com. So they're DVC point rental place and they do last minute deals. And they're sending out some really interesting stuff over the next couple of weeks, like old QS studios for $120 a night, which I don't know what rate you got at Pop Century, but I may consider a $120, $125 studio, uh, especially if you're paying rack rate at Pop. It depends uh, where you're at there. But anyway, check it out, uh, dvcreservations.com. They've got a newsletter you can sign up for um, with last-minute deals. They've also got a last-minute deal page. Those are the two things I would check. Mm, cool, cool. Here's a question from Matt. It's another discount question. Um, my wife and I have reservations for the third week of January 2020-22. Room-only discounts generally drop in late September. As usual, we booked a vacation many weeks ago to lock in the Lagoon View room at Grand Floridian. And now we're waiting for the discount to drop so we can rebook the same room. It's usually 20 to 25% off the rock rate, which is a chunk of change at the grand flow. Have you heard any rumors Disney will be stingy with discounts during the 50th celebration? So Matt, a couple of things here. One, I think the discounts might come out in October or November as well. So I checked the historical discounts page at mousesavers.com. And it looks like for that part of January, Disney's put out discounts as late as October or November. So be patient there on that. The other thing I would say is I, I would not be surprised to see some more Grand Flow inventory cash rooms getting taken out of circulation. Have you heard this? Yeah, but this is all predicated on the 50th as it gets underway. Yeah. I mean, let's put it this way. It, the 50th is in three weeks, mm-hmm. right? There's no way it's going to be as big as, as Disney had anticipated No, because of COVID. Yeah. Right. And that is impacting a lot of the decisions. This is going to be pretty dynamic and people need to be ready for some pretty amazing pricing happening just because Disney wants bodies. Last couple of weeks of people reporting them, I met at Walt Disney World and it's like, there's nobody here. Where are the crowds? And it's like, 
not a story Disney wants out there. No, and I think we're going to start to see, I don't think panic's going to set in mm-hmm. over the next couple of weeks, mm-hmm. but once the new fiscal year starts in October, mm-hmm. yeah. you will, I think, start to see Disney move pretty quickly mm-hmm. on a number of things because they lost fiscal year 2020. They've, they've written off fiscal year 2021 mm-hmm. to lose yet another fiscal year. And remember, once that day is gone, you can't make up no. money for that day, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to be difficult. So I would not be surprised to see more discounts coming up after October 1. But people who are planning family vacations, pulling kids out of school, buying plane tickets, do have to be the equivalent of a cliff diver waiting here for the right moment to pounce on these rumors. <laughs> the <jump>, exactly. <laughs> the tide's not not in, it's not in, it's not in. Okay, it's in, jump. Oh, yeah. it's going up. <laughs> yeah. All right. So. All right, here's a question from Nick. Mm-hmm. Have either of you heard anything about the future of Tables in Wonderland? It was a great program for pass holders, which leads me to believe that our corporate overlords will not allow it to continue because we can't have nice things anymore. So let's let's handle that. Nick, I've heard nothing on it. Mm-hmm. Disney was nice enough to extend it out. I think it was for three months to correspond to the three months that the uh, program was closed. So mine originally expired in April, and I got it all the way through the end of July, I believe, mm-hmm. um, which was nice. But no, I haven't heard anything about it, and my sense is that that's gone forever. Have you heard anything about it, Jim? Yeah, I know we keep talking about the resort and its revenue streams and how everybody's under huge pressure right now to deliver big. And something like this, it got more people through the door. It got locals to come out, but at the same time at a discounted price. And right now it's just sort of like, no, we need everything at top dollar. And also they don't have the capacity to uh, be able to sell incremental seats. There we go. There we go. All right. Uh, next question from Nick is, do you have any indication whether the new DVC rooms for 2022 at the Grand Floridian will be available at seven months for resale customers, members who are not owners at the Grand Flow? We have a resale Polynesian contract and would love to stay at the Grand Flow sometimes, but rooms are rarely available if you don't have access at 11 months with the Grand Floridian as your home resort. My guess is that the new rooms will be available since they'll be part of the same condo association as the original Grand Flow DVC. So that's a great question, Nick. I, I'm assuming it's going to be the same as the original uh, Grand Flow DVC as well. And I think um, Disney's going to make some moves to make sure that there's more availability at the Grand Flow. I think they, with the thing that they're saying, especially over the last you know 18 months, is that there are relatively few people who want to stay at the Grand Floridian paying cash mm-hmm. and rack rates so that some of that inventory would be better off as DVC because there's this huge bucket of points that need to be spent from accumulating over the past couple of years. So that's yeah. what I would expect. Makes sense. By the way, Jim, I was at, uh, when, when Chrissy and I were staying at the Polynesian bungalow last week. Mm-hmm. We noticed that there's a boat dock that is between the TTC and the contemporary. And there's actually a road that now goes from, uh, you know, that part of World Drive is a dirt road that now directs to that boat dock. It's a, it's a dirt road that goes from World Drive towards the lake. Why would you put a boat dock there? A place to look at all the pilings that uh, Well, like I was about sunk? to say, the, the Venetian, the Mediterranean, how many resorts have, have been talked about for that spot? And every five to 10 years, this area goes back into development because it's like, we have a new construction technique. It's like Rocky this and Bowigle, sure. this time for sure. And it's like, uh, you know, so... The fact that there is a boat dock there and there is a dirt road there means hope springs eternal. I you know, but yeah. until such time as Disney finally decides to commit to the Disney Atlantis Resort, which can be built <laughs> in the water, that ain't happening. It's a, a lovely piece of swampland and and cannot hold a full size resort, which is kind of a heartbreaker. As Laurel and I were walking around between the Polynesian and the Grand Floridian. Mm-hmm. I like to play a little game called, um, where would you put this next resort? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was, where would you put the Polynesian DVC tower? Mm. And suffice to say that uh, I don't think very much of the spirit of Aloha Luau dinner. (laughs) But I was like, look, you could keep these trees that sort of shade the Luau facilities Mm -hmm. from the rest of the Polynesian. You could put up a a four-story tower. That would certainly help. Sightline-wise. Sightline-wise, exactly. That's the, That was my big concern. Hmm. The other thing I was looking at, and I was spending a lot of time in the Polynesian uh, bungalow deck mm-hmm. in the back, and I was trying to figure out what 
I didn't like about the Grand Flow villas. Mm-hmm. And here's what I came up with. It's one story too tall. Proportionally, the shape is too big for what it is. Mm-hmm. It's um, Or the, uh, the size of the roof compared to the size of the body of the building is wrong. And it's wrong by one floor. Well, the real irony is you sitting there in the Polynesian bungalows looking out at the DVC when the original idea of doing honeymoon cottages was part of the grand flow. You're supposed to be looking out at 15 to 20 honeymoon cottages that spread out from the resort. I mean, you know, you could go back to the original site plan, you know, for 88 or the expansion and, and that was the idea. And then uh, here comes DVC and here comes yes. the wedding pavilion. And in hindsight, you're not wrong about it, it being the, the one thing too tall. But but frankly, there was the demand. I mean, that's why we're seeing the, the long key wing. Is that the one that's being turned into uh, Big Pine Key? Big Pine right. Key. There we go. That's the one that's been announced, right? Yep. There might be more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, very good. All right. Last question is from Tyler, who says, you and Jim have a great dialogue. Len, I love that you do hardcore research. The most recent example I have is of this is when you were explaining the math of cast member take-home pay and rent. Jim, you have a very comfortable persona. I equate you two to sweet and sour sauce. You can figure out who's the sweet and who's the sour. Keep up the great work, guys. You've got a friend in me. Oh, thank you, Tyler. I appreciate that. Mm, that's very nice. And mm. speaking of sweet and sour sauce, I, I look in the mirror every morning and it's like, wow, a face like a dumpling. <laughs> A face made for radio. There we go. There we go. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim finishes the history of Disney's Haunted Mansions. We'll be right back. When we left off, it was July of 1964. Walt had decided that he wasn't going to do the Rivers Front Square project in St. Louis Mm -hmm. because he wasn't sure who was going to pay for what. And he was already looking at Walt Disney World. He was. He was. As early as April of 64, they had already searched the land. You know, he was out there trying to make the deals to, you know, at this point, they were only looking for five to 10,000 acres, not the, the 40,000 they eventually wound up with. But the downside of Disney pivoting away from the St. Louis thing is that meant that Walt was actually going to have to pay to develop the Haunted Mansion all on his own. As early as the Mickey Mouse Park in 53, Walt had his idea about his spook house, but he still hasn't entirely zeroed what this thing is going to be. And so at this point, he brings in Mark Davis. Now, this was a master animator, but starting in January of 61, Walt literally asked Mark to go down to Disneyland to see what would you change? What would you fix? And Mark started with the mine train through nature's wonderland, went into work one day and said, well, you understand that people are sitting in the cars facing each other. It's like, yeah. It said, but things people are looking at are outside of the car. Could we maybe change the position of the seats? You know, just get them facing forward and then do a better job of staging things. And Walt loved Mark's not only common sense of touch, but but his his showmanship. And so working on my trade to Nature's Wonderland led to Mark redoing the scenes underwater on the subs. So anyway, Walt's standing there, and it's been over 10 years at this point, and it's like, okay, somebody's got to clarify the mansion. So Mark, you're up. And Mark comes through the door to work on this project at the exact moment when mansion goes from being a walkthrough to a ride-through. That's actually largely because of some of the shows that Mark worked on for the New York World's Fair. Uh, Magic Skyway is, is the Ford Pavilion actually led to the Omnimover. The very system that pushed those Ford convertibles through the attraction is what eventually led to Disney developing the Omnimover that allowed you to sort of turn you at a precise moment at the exact mm-hmm. element they wanted you to see. So how did, how did ride systems work before that? They weren't synced up as much? You know, if you look at Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, mm-hmm. Snow White's Scary Adventure, these are classic buzz bar attractions. You load the people in, the person hits a button, and they begin to move through the attraction on the steel plate in the ground that actually provides the electricity that powers the vehicle. Oh, that's the buzz bar. The buzz bar. And okay. you get people to look at specific elements because you, you throw a light on it quickly. Or the classic scene out of Snow White's Scary Adventure where you see the back of the queen, but when the figure pivots, you know, you're now seeing the front of the crone. It was a different sort of staging, but you had to create 
these giant vignettes, whereas the Omnimover could allow you to do some really subtle stuff. Mm. If you think about that moment in the mansion, first you look down the endless hallway and suddenly then you turn and there's the coffin with the, let me out, let me out. You know, and then you turn to the front, you're going down the hallway with all the doorways that have been, you know, that you're able to move from these individual show elements that build toward when we finally get to Madame Leota. So Mark comes in late 64. By January of 1965, there is the Disneyland 10 Centennial episode of the Walt Disney Wonderful World of Color show. Yep. It debuted January 3rd, 1965. And it's Walt taking Julie Ream, the, the first Disneyland ambassador, through this faux version of Imagineering. But it's like, here's Mary Blair showing off what they're going to do with Small World when it comes to Disneyland. And here's John Hench showing off the new restaurant that they're doing at the Plaza that's going to replace the Swift Marketplace. And now, finally, here's Mark. And... Just in the six months that Mark's been working on the mansion, he's already got the portraits done for the stretching room. Which is, I mean, that's huge. So the stretching room was part of the idea that they had for St. Louis. But the gags around the portraits is the thing that makes it. Yeah. Even at this point, Walt is thinking kind of a hybrid. It's going to be a ride through, but because of the crowds that are anticipating turning out for this thing, he wants an elaborate queue. So Rolly Crump has created all of these truly funky effects during his time with Yale Gracie, and Walt just can't give them up. They're based on the scenes we talked about for the Captain Gore and Priscilla version of the attraction. We have to walk in and view things, and you need a minute or two for the effects to happen. So what they eventually decide to do is that outside of the mansion, there will be this thing that set up sort of a traveling exhibit called the Museum of the Weird. And this will be the equivalent of the queue. Guests will go inside and wander through this space for 20 minutes, a half hour. That long. That's a lot of gags. Trust me, Roly came up with a lot of stuff. And you get to see things like his coffin clock and his living wax man who, here is this human figure that is on fire from various wicks that turns and starts to interact with guests. So genuinely creepy stuff. But Walt wanted that as sort of the pre-show and then guests would exit the Museum of the Weird and head over to the mansion proper and then down in the uh, stretching room and then walk under the train tracks and eventually make their way into the mansion and begin the ride proper. But it's one of these things where it's like, okay, we got to make sure that the Omnimover system works. So as kind of a proof of concept, and again, Walt loves to do this, get other people to pay for things. So the Omnimover test was done with Adventures Through Inner Space, which debuted with the new, new Tomorrowland in August of 67. And that was Monsanto? Yes, the lovely folks at Monsanto paid for the field testing of the ride system for Mansion. You know, all, all of a sudden, I feel less bad about insecticide uh, <laughs> impervious pests now. Well, yeah. there we go. I, I feel I feel good about grasshoppers the size of footballs. And the nice thing is, that's a whole new area for Animal Kingdom. It's <laughs> true, exactly. <laughs> all right. So we were talking about Bob Foster and doing the land search. October of 65, news breaks. Dizzy's coming to Florida. Governor Hayden Burns confirms it the very next day. Walt's down there November of 65. In the the Disney tradition of the weenie, as in the castle is the weenie in Disneyland that drives you deeper into the park, the theme park for the Walt Disney World Resort was, in fact, the weenie. We have to convince people who have traditionally gone to Florida, who only vacation on the coast, that they Mm -hmm. need to come to the central part of the state and come there on a regular basis because we need the money to build the futuristic city. So the notion was, okay, so we need attractions. We need really big attractions. As the decision was made to go forward with Disneyland's version of the Haunted Mansion, it was just, well, of course, we're going to build the second one at the exact same time. In fact, there was a warehouse that they just basically filled up with the weirdest version of Noah's Ark. It's, you know, it's <laughs> two sets of the hitchhiking ghosts and two sets of the, the murderous bride up in the attic because at one point, one set of the figures was going to go to Anaheim and then the other set was going to go to Orlando. Oh, yeah, sure. And they're, and they're building it. They might as well build them both at the same time. As this is going on, 
We lose Walt in December of 66. And as the price of Walt Disney World begins to increase, we see reduction in scopes of, of the attraction. In fact, if you have the chance, folks, go check out this Disneyland 10 Centennial special. Because, for example, they show Clyde Coates is proudly standing there in front of a model for Pirates of the Caribbean, where it's this scene where this poor soul is being forced to walk the plank. And behind him on the pirate ship are 10 or 15 pirates goading him. And then below him in the water are all these sharks circling around. And I mean, this is a finished model. Walt selected it to be shown on television to showcase this wonderful ride that was coming forward. And anyone who knows the attraction today knows, well, you've got the captain on the Wicked Wench and you got two gunners that occasionally pop up, and that's mm -hmm. it. The elaborate, expensive version fell off the table. To a lesser extent, we saw kind of the same thing with Mansion. They sort of crept in the scope to keep it affordable. Pirates of the Caribbean opens at Disneyland in March of 67. Mansion, Disneyland version, opens in August of 69. The Walt Disney World, of course, is an opening day attraction, so October of 71. From the get-go in 67, when they opened uh, the, the Omnimover for Adventure Through Inner Space, that developed kind of a reputation as a Disneyland's lover's lane. Ah, yes. The cast members used to tell the young boys and girls who get on this thing, it's like, oh, it's a 10-minute long attraction, and then would hurry over to the offload area where the very same Omnimover would come in two and a half minutes later, and young people would be pulling on clothes very, very quickly. <laughs> but that never happened with California or Florida's mansion. And I've always had it explained to me is that the Monsanto Adventures of the Inner Space ride was free. It was included in a ticket book, you know, where you went to Disneyland. So you didn't have to pay to go on that. Anybody could go on it. Whereas sure. Mansion was an e-ticket. You literally had to commit to pulling something out of a book, and you only got so many of them. And the whole notion was, well, yes, you're an attractive young woman, but I spent an e-ticket to, to ride this thing, and I'm going to look. Yeah. We can make out later. So... Mansion opens up, hugely successful, immediately thought of as a, a franchisable ride. So relatively early on in the 70s, the Oriental Land Company begins talking to Disney about how we wanted a Disneyland of our own. We want to build it in Tokyo Bay. And the Japanese dealt with the Disney theme parks as if they were a buffet. It's sort of like we want, for example, the exterior parts of Caribbean from California. But we really, if we have to choose, we'd prefer the Walt Disney World version of Mansion. <laughs> You know, Imagineering yeah. is like, what? what did we get ourselves into? Yeah, you know, I want I want the exterior of Pirates of the Caribbean from Walt Disney World. But mm -hmm. like the queue from Paris. There we go. But the ride experience from Disneyland. Can I get the soundtrack from Shanghai? What also colored the placement of Mansion for Tokyo is that they have a, a, a different take on the spiritual realm than, than we do here in the West. So when it came time to figure out where does Mansion go in Tokyo Disneyland, it actually get dropped in Fantasyland. Because it's like, ghosts aren't real. This is a fantasy. You're getting on this attraction and experiencing these silly ghosts that don't really exist. To bury the needle in the exact opposite direction, going from a clone of the original Haunted Mansion, if we we jump ahead to May of 1985, where we learn that Disney's going to build a theme park outside of Paris, this is the second generation of Imagineers who, frankly, have a problem with the tone of the mansion, that the whole, is it silly? Is it serious? Is it scary? And they decide, this generation of, of folks, they've seen movies like Poltergeist. They want real scares. So they really leaned in hard to Phantom Manor being a scary mansion. And it's a completely different, uh, parts of it are a completely different story. I remember Tony Baxter did this amazing presentation about how if you look at Euro Disneyland's Fantasyland, it's like Pinocchio represents Italy and Cinderella is there for France and Toad is there for England. England. And so they were always looking for tiebacks to classic European entertainment. So, for example, for Phantom Manor, it's literally, it's like they're borrowing a page from Phantom of the Opera. Oh, yeah. okay. And, and likewise, the sort of secondary plot of the mansion, The Abandoned Bride, that's Miss Havisham from Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. I always thought it was. Yeah, yeah. 
Actually, I think I think Christine might have told me that, but yeah, okay. I've mean, I've I've noticed the similarities for a while. Mm-hmm. So they set up this whole story for Phantom Manor, where it's Henry Ravenwood. He's the gentleman who discovered gold in Thunder Mesa. It's his family that dug the gold mine that's out on the, the island, and he has his lovely daughter Melanie. But nobody's ever good enough for Melanie. And so the thing is, when you get in the stretching room of that mansion, you see the four gentlemen who almost Mary Melody that met some sort of mysterious fate that may have had something to do with Henry. Huh. It gets darker and darker and grimmer and grimmer. Yeah. The more you go through it. Yeah. Yeah. At what point you descend underground, right? And then you start to see bodies and that's it. Exactly. And that is straight out of poltergeist. (laughs) You move the headstones, but you kept the bodies. (laughs) Right. Right. I forgot. And the original end of this attraction was, remember, how you enter the underworld, you literally come across the, instead of going out the window of the mansion and then falling into the graveyard, in this version, you exit the mansion and here's the phantom laughing in front of an open grave. And yeah. you, your Omnimover just turns and you descend into the earth through the open grave. I mean, it's just yeah. uh, scary, scary stuff. So the mansion in Walt Disney World is in Liberty Square. Right. In Disneyland, it's in New Orleans Square. Right. Mm-hmm. In Disneyland Paris, it's in Frontierland. Mm-hmm. In Tokyo, it's in Fantasyland. Right. So in Shanghai, where is it? As we get into Shanghai, and, and more to the point, get, we get to Hong Kong. Hong Kong, We yeah. have a different beliefs when it comes to ghosts, to, to the oh, spirit gosh, right, right, okay. In fact, Hong Kong Disneyland opens in September of 2005. Over time, they talk about, we need to lands, we need to explain. So we get Toy Story Land, we get Grizzly Gulch, and then we get Mystic Point. And the part of the story that so excited people that got them on board, like, wow, that's an attraction I want to see, is the grisly story of Captain Gore and his bride, Priscilla, two characters that carried the entire story. If you look at what they did with Mystic Manor, we're back to a story that's told basically by two characters. We meet Henry Mystic, this great adventurer who brings home the monkey, a good close friend, Albert. And as part of the pre-show, we are in his collection room. Then Sir Henry Mystic leans into the room and, oh, I'll be out in a moment. And, oh, by the way, Albert, don't touch that music box. So, of course, Albert opens the music box. And we now move through, just like the original version of Disneyland's walkthrough, Haunted Mansion, Eight to ten show scenes where the story gets crazier and more involved, and but just like that version of the attraction, we end up right where we began with this wonderful quiet denouncement with a you know sort of a fun button of you know Albert's managed to close the music box and and everything is retru- restored to the, the, the as it was at the beginning of the attraction, and Sir Henry Mystic evidently has missed this entire thing. And and I just love the fact that we circled back to a story carried by two characters in much the same way that just last week we were talking about Ratatouille and its trackless ride system. If Disney's done internal survey work in regard to which attractions from the overseas parks should they be bringing stateside? And evidently, out of the top three mystic manner consistently pages is two it's like the effect of that one we want that attraction stateside it looks well, they're, amazing. Are they going to replace a haunted mansion though i mean they're not going to do that if we're talking about florida the one place that they've eyeballed bringing that in is actually mm-hmm. animal kingdom if you squint it's like okay yeah it does have a monkey and it's so technically it does fit in animal kingdom i think we t- we've talked a bit about the disneyland forward project the expansion of Disneyland that potentially, if, if Anaheim signs off on what Disney wants to do with the, the various pieces of property that are around the Disneyland Resort, specifically a number of things that are designated as parking lots, we could see Mystic Manor come stateside, or at least in California, as part of that expansion. But that's more of a new land or an expansion of California adventure. Because if you look at Mystic Manor and you squint in a weird sort of way, isn't that kind of like the Winchester Mystery House? And so we've we've got two things coming up on the Haunted Mansion, right? We've got Muppet Haunted Mansion. We do, up. we do. October eighth on Disney Plus, and I can't begin to tell you how long 
a Muppet Halloween thing has been in the works. So the, the fact well, that we've we've read the treatments and the oh, scripts over the years. We right? have. We have. <laughs> I, I love the fact that they actually got Kirk Thatcher to direct this. But just today, we had also news break about the brand new Haunted Mansion movie. And I, I want to stress that if you talk with anybody at Disney and you bring up the 2003 Eddie Murphy movie, it's like, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. We never made a movie like that. The movie is not canon. <laughs> no, no. Though Meg Tilly, uh, excuse me, Jennifer Tilly, who did Madame Leota in the film, when she was doing press for the, this Rob Minkoff movie, she talked about, oh, yeah, I've already talked with, with Disney. We've got plans in place for me to come in and record the stuff for Madame Leota, that they're going right. you know, to put me in the ball in the room. And you know, so thank goodness that didn't happen. But the key difference is that Haunted Mansion didn't make much money, whereas mm-hmm. six months, eight months later, we got Curse of the Black Pearl made more money right. than God, and that's how Johnny Depp's version of... Jack Sparrow wound up in Pirates of the Caribbean. So yeah. just today we got news that Rosario Dawson is joining Owen Wilson in the, this new version of the Haunted Mansion, which, by the way, folks, if you're looking to keep tabs on this, its working title is Joyride. So when it's shooting around the country, that'll be the the name they use to sort of keep people off the trail. But anyway, the log line for the film is a single mom named Gabby and her son purchase an estate and wind up hiring a tour guide, a psychic, a priest, and a historian to try to exercise the ghosts that are in their new home. It sounds like the beginning of a joke. <laughs> a tour guide, a psychic, a priest, and a historian walk into a bar. <laughs> But who do they have? Who do they have for the psychic and the tour guide? Tiffany Haddish supposedly been signed. Genius, yeah. genius casting. But the, yeah. the, the the psychic and Lakeit Stanfield uh, is supposedly the tour guide character. So just two fantastic choices for that. So just you can see them in the roles. What do you think, Owen Wilson? Are we talking the priest or the historian? I'm going with the. Is he old enough to be a historian? I mean, the priest is sort of like the obvious comedy mm-hmm. casting thing, right? Long time on Wilson of him, want to see him in this movie. But at the same time, there's a part of me that just feels bad because remember, back in July of 2010, we got news that Guillermo del Toro was going to be doing a Haunted Mansion movie. And Guillermo is a crazy, crazy yeah. mansion fan. Yeah, he loves the mansion. He somehow acquired the actual wallpaper from the mansion of roles that... To be, to be fair, Jim... Mm-hmm. If you ask around mm-hmm. and you stalk the right alleys at night, <laughs> it's doable. There, there we go. There we go. But he had a, a whole film set up that was built around the Hatbox Ghost. And, and at one point, he even had Ryan Gosling. He was Ryan Gosling was going to be starring in the Haunted we, Mansion movie. I always confuse, confuse him and... Mm-hmm. In Ryan Reynolds. Which one is Ryan Gosling? The the one who did not appear in, in Free Guy. <laughs> you know, the, the, okay. Not right. Deadpool. But okay. Disney could never bring itself to greenlight what Guillermo had written. Because but why? Because it, it, it's, we go all the way, way back to Walt. The Disney executive, is this too scary? Is this too silly? I'm not sure about the tone. Do we, do we really want to do this? And you, know, it, it, you know, I, Jim, as a podcaster, often feel the need to give film creation advice to Guillermo <laughs> del Toro. And the thing that stops me is as I go to write these emails yep. to Mr. Del Toro mm-hmm. is I always remember at the last minute, I don't know a damn thing about movie making. Yeah. And I, I don't know if the Disney executives are encumbered the way I am. They kept dithering. And finally, Guillermo was like, well, okay. Then. I'm going to go make my monster movie. Yeah, and that's the thing. <laughs> he, he went off. He, he didn't get to make his Haunted Mansion movie, but he did get to make his version of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, which, of course, was The Shape of Water. It right. came out August of 2017. Went on to win Best Picture, Best Director, Best Production Designer, and Best Original Score. And it's just a part of me is like, that could have been Disney's Hunter Mansion movie. Exactly. I mean, imagine if you if you would have applied that that same passion to a Haunted Mansion film. Mm. By the way, Jim, we're uh, we're mentioning all the people that are uh, that are in these things. Did we talk about who is the uh, the bride in Disneyland's no, Haunted Mansion? No, in fact, you actually have some pretty decent info on this. All right, so added in two thousand six, right? Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, bride, the Haunted Mansion. Mm-hmm. Right. So the uh, the image of the bride is a real person, and actually she's she's fairly well-known. It's Julia Lee, 
like I've mentioned on the show a couple of times, I'm, I've rewatched with Laurel uh, the Angel TV series from the early 2000s. So Julia Lee plays Anne in Angel, and she played two different characters in two excellent episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer hmm. as well. So she is the picture mm-hmm. of the ghost. But the voice is a voiceover actress named Kat Cressida, yeah, who Disney uses for a ton of stuff, right? You, you, you knew the name. She's done... A lot of great stuff for the Star Wars animated series. I mean, Cat's a huge talent. And just one tiny little concern, because it's just sort of like, they redid The Bride in 2006. And I want to say, what was it, 2015? We got the Hatbox Ghost. And let's not forget that, you know, in fact, just at Disneyland, this past week, we got the 20th anniversary of Haunted Mansion Holiday. Could you imagine... If this uh, Haunted Mansion film is a success, how what they could do with the Tiffany Haddish character during the Halloween parties? No doubt. Oh, God, that'd be funny. I don't know if you've been following the Oogie Boogie Bash that's, that's happening at California Adventure. Oh, it's getting rave reviews in California. In the Avengers campus, they've actually brought in the Agatha Harkness character from WandaVision. <laughs> that's right. I heard the, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, that's the thing. It doesn't cost them much money, right? But- yeah. No, it no, was, no. It, it was Agnes all along, yeah. Yeah, but, but my one caveat is that because so many Imagineers grew up loving the Haunted Mansion, all of them want to put their hand on it. I know, I know. It's time. In fact, we, we talked earlier in the show about Expedition Everest is finally going to down for a lengthy rehab, and supposedly they might be doing something with the, with the Yeti with, with projection technology. But it's like there are so many other attractions that need love that need updates and to give disney credit we just saw them do an extraordinary job with snow white scary adventure turning it into snow white's enchanted wish and and again a lot of use of projected technology and that sort of thing there but it's time to spread the love around and but i think you, you you you've nailed it exactly if this haunted mansion movie with owen wilson and rosario dawson you know, does any business at all, it's like, we're going to see five years of those characters being folded in. And it's just sort of like, you know, it's enough. Okay. Leave it alone. Go work at another attraction for a while. There are plenty of attractions to work on in Disneyland and Walt Disney World. It's true. There we go. So fair enough. But anyway, so there we go, folks. And, And by the way, again, congratulations to whoever in the pool you know, picked the unlikely thing that Jim could finish the story in six episodes. And we've got to look forward in it. Not only we get to look back, we got to look forward. It's a little bonus there. It's like, it's like getting an extra McNugget in your, uh, in your happy meal. <laughs> Are we going to start talking about Denny's again, Len? <laughs> should never do these things close to dinner time or lunchtime for that. No, 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 we should. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes including new shows on the history of Disney's Flying Saucer Ride. On next week's show, Jim talks about what it was like two weeks out from the opening of Walt Disney World 50 years ago in 1971. I think, Jim, I think the two words we're looking for here are utter chaos. Well, (laughs) and you're not wrong. All right. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com. More of me, LennitTorrentPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be at the booth serving British food, explaining geography to the organizers of the 2021 Celtic Festival and Highland Games of the Quad Cities on Saturday, September 24th at, I'm not making this up, the Mississippi Valley Fairgrounds in beautiful downtown Davenport, Iowa. Mm-hmm. British food, Mississippi Valley, Iowa, okay. Celtic Festival. Oh, sure. Sure. While Aaron's doing that, please go on iTunes and read our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.